Thank you for listening to Room 9, my daddy's podcast. Hope you enjoy. If you would like to help Room 9, please visit their support page. You can listen to Room 9 on your favorite podcast listening platform. Don't forget to visit our Instagram and Facebook page. Please like it. Room 9, if you better yourself, you better the world. Wait a minute. You're showing color. Oh, you better believe that. How are you going to know? Think about that one. You're showing color. That's the whole thing. That's what separates us. Yeah, things have changed. It's ridiculous. <laughs> episode 45 of the room nine podcast all right this is going to be an introduction leading into a shorter solo episode i've decided to kind of throw this one out there it's been a crazy few days of my daughter in the hospital and it's just been a little challenging for me to stay focused the last couple days but i am uh, just gonna whip out something that's kind of been on my mind i've been reading this book and I'm going to, there's one chapter in there that's really cool. So I wanted to kind of just talk about it for a few minutes and we'll be right back at normalcy next week. Real quick introduction, room9podcast.com is always there and you guys should go check it out. It's a pretty sweet website designed by yours truly, Sean Cuddy. So be sure to check that out. Got a lot of awesome guests coming up in the next few weeks. So you guys should be excited about that because I know I am. I'm definitely looking forward to doing that. CEO of Evergreen Health, sitting down with the CEO of Horizons, sitting down with the program director at Terrace House, sitting down with with Colleen Babcock from Horizon Health. So there's a lot of awesome guests coming up. So be looking forward to that. Bear with me on this solo episode. I always enjoy it more when there's a guest on. Not that I've done a lot of solo episodes, but, you know, whatever. Anywho. Get the podcast.com fill out a contact form, go on our support page. You can click on any of our social links, like us, follow us, comment, leave us notes, thoughts, comments, concerns. You can also help out there financially, either on Patreon by committing to a monthly donation, which in return you receive stuff back, stickers, bonus clips, unedited clips. Whatever, that's all in the works of being changed and added on. I'm in the process of doing that, so there is more incentive to commit to a monthly thing as opposed to just getting some stickers and the ability to pick a topic for an episode. So that's all being changed, and we're getting more creative with that here. And other than that, I think that's really it. I'm going to get into the topic of today, which... It was a book I just finished reading by a man named Mark Manson. And the book title, believe it or not, is 
everything is fucked. And it really is an awesome book. It sounds like a very fatalist, nihilistic book, but it's really not. It's awesome and really changed my mind and my perception of life and everything else. But the chapter that I wanted to kind of just discuss on this episode was the chapter called Pain is the Universal Constant. And I just love the idea that he took. It kind of reminds me of the blog that I wrote, My Paradoxical Addiction, which I know I've referenced quite a few times on this podcast at different episodes. It is really awesome how he explains pain and that it's really kind of just here in the universe for good. That's what life is based on. And so I really love just the way he explains it, pain, and talks about our pursuit of happiness and, you know, stuff like that. He opens up discussing this research that went on that he ends up calling the blue dot experiment, which the psychologists who are researching it, I think titled it prevalence-induced concept change, yes. And so what happened is the researchers would show these people mostly blue dots at first and then some purple dots, and some of them were kind of a shade in between purple and blue, but anyway, they're showing these, these dots, and when there was a blue dot, they had to hit blue button. When it wasn't, they'd put not blue. And so what the researchers slowly discovered is that everyone was pretty accurate determining which dots were blue and which ones were not. But as soon as the researchers started limiting the number of blue dots and showing them more shades of purple, the subjects began to mistake purple dots for blue. And that kind of seems like, oh, whatever, what does that mean? And they did this with faces, and they did this with business proposals, ethical proposals, unethical, neutral proposals, and they kept doing this with more detailed things. And really what they ended up showing is how we warp our perceptions to fit our expectations pretty much. Because we got used to seeing a blue dot, we expected there would be that many blue dots because we got used to seeing an unethical business proposal. We just kept assuming that the, all the business proposals we were seeing were unethical because that's what we were expecting. And it was really a really cool concept on how they did this. And when you really sit down and think about the, the meaning of this research, it's very bizarre because once we start expecting something to be there, we just assume it's there and we can totally miss what's right in front of us. It also kind of suggests, essentially, the more we look for threats, the more we will see them, regardless of how safe or comfortable our environment actually is. And I feel like this is something that we see that is happening in society today, which I will get into a little more later on in this episode. And it kind of just showed that the better things get, the more we perceive threats where there are none and the more upset we become. And he goes on, Mark Manson goes on to say that this is kind of the heart of the paradox of progress. So there's kind of like three main points here I want to touch base on. But first there's this, he talks about this experiment that Emily Durkheim, the father of sociology, he did this thought experiment in one of his books where he just kind of went on to talk about if we had a world without corruption or sadness or conflict or crime or pain or whatever, if something like this would bring us a more comfortable society, a more ethical society, or would it just make things worse? And he ended up kind of coming to the conclusion that if everyone stopped killing each other, we would be more upset about the littler things, the smaller things, I should say. And he kind of just said protecting people from their problems and adversity doesn't make them happier or more secure. It makes them more easily insecure. 
and you kind of see that with a kid. If you raise a kid and you you shelter him and you protect him from every issue and every problem growing up, that kid essentially becomes a baby when he's an adult or she's an adult. It becomes sensitive to every little thing and can't face adversity and acting like a child when they're 40 years old because they don't know how to deal with anything. There is a quote in there. It says, Our emotional reactions to our problems are not determined by the size of the problem. Rather, our minds simply amplify or minimize our problems to fit the degree of stress we expect to experience. Which is crazy. But you can see this. If you stop for a minute and like look at your life and the life around you and the people around you, you see that. You see that they call it only child syndrome or whatever it is. These people who get kids who are just protected and never taught lessons growing up become so baby-like when they're grown adults. And it's bizarre. And you can see it in people. You can see it happen all over the place. So there's three topics in this chapter I wanted to touch on. One is I kind of call mild but not satisfied pain, where we're just kind of always at this level. Then I want to talk about this concept by a man, Nassim Taleb. He coined the phrase anti-fragility. And then I want to talk about just kind of the value of pain. So there's three points from this chapter I wanted to touch on. So mild but not satisfied part is really cool. I don't. I kind of just made that section up. It's not really a section in the chapter, but there's just this part of it that I love. And he starts to compare it to, well, he uses Einstein's theory of relativity as an analogy, which I thought is awesome because what little I can understand about physics, I love reading about because it's really trippy stuff. I don't know how much you know about Einstein's theory of relativity, but he ended up proving that the speed of light is the universal constant. We always looked at Newtonian physics and would assume that time and space is the universal constant and that it's immutable and then Einstein came around and said well no actually it's the speed of light and he kind of discusses the whole twin paradox that if you had a twin and you sent him around the earth he'd be younger I mean the faster you move the, the more time slows down so he proved that time and space is not a universal constant so basically what he ends up doing is using that as kind of an analogy of sorts to say that so many of us at happiness as a universal constant and isn't. What he starts with is he talks about this this other research study that went on back in the late 80s when pagers were first coming out and they gave everybody hundreds of people these pagers and they would just randomly page them throughout the day and basically ask them on a scale of 1 to 10 how happy are you at this moment and what has been going on in your life. And the results of that were showing that people were almost always back to a 6 a six or a seven, no matter what they were doing. It could be something awesome happening, and then they go back. It could be something great happening or terrible happening, and then they go back. There's this constant, yeah, things could be worse, but things could be better kind of attitude going on. And this study essentially show that nobody's fully happy all the time, but similarly, nobody's fully unhappy all the time either. It kind of seems that humans, regardless of our external circumstances, live in this constant state of, you know, I don't want to say mediocrity, but I mean, it's kind of just this bland state. It's always reminded me of the concept of the hedonic treadmill, how we're constantly in pursuit of happiness, of something in the future that's going to make us happy now. And we work really, really hard to get to it. And we achieve that thing or we are able to purchase that thing, that house, that car, that whatever, that new, the newest cell phone, smartphone, whatever the hell you want to call it. And we achieve that thing and we grab it and yet all of a sudden it wears off and we're not, we don't enjoy it anymore. I always think about being a kid at Christmas and we get these awesome gifts, but how many 
Christmas gifts do you really remember as a kid? There's very few of them. Out of all the gifts you've got as a child, you don't, re and it wears off after a few days. And you play with your toys and your games or whatever it is you got for Christmas, and within two, three weeks, it's bleh, it's over in the corner with the rest of your shit. And that's basically what this this study was saying, is that on a scale of one to ten, ten being the happiest, one being the most shittiest feeling ever, people were almost always at a six or a seven. And we're always mildly dissatisfied. And you start thinking about this in your life, you start realizing it. They were always trying to plan something to achieve more happiness. Always. Each of us implicitly assumes that we are the universal constant of our own experience. This was a quote from the chapter. And that got me thinking about, like, oh, what does that really mean? And I think a little bit before I might have quoted it too that I have written down here is, what we believe is the universal constant of our experience is in fact not constant at all. Instead, much of what we assume to be true and real is relative to our own perception. And then I thought about the whole sense of self. And we have the sense of our own self and that I am experiencing happiness, I am experiencing sadness, I am experiencing joy. But there is nothing that is experiencing it. You just are happiness at that time. You are joy at that time. You are sadness at that time. You are anxiety at the time. You don't actually feel anything. This whole idea of a self and that we are constantly here experiencing this or that is such a fallacy. And really, you could, if you start paying attention to this, this whole sense of self, you realize that you aren't experiencing anything. You are the experience itself. And that is some trippy shit. And that what that basically means is you can't get rid of pain and suffering. Buddhism has talked about this for thousands of years. I mean, any attempt to move away from pain is just going to backfire. I mean, this is why you see rich people who are miserable. This is why you see rich people who are depressed and anxious when they could have buy anything in the world. This is what happens because pain is a universal constant. And I almost want to say mediocrity is a universal constant. There's so much pain because you can either augment pain or you can get rid of it. And you kind of come back to this, eh, everything's eh, could be worse, could be better attitude. And that's almost like what is constant in the universe. So it really turns out to be that the pursuit of happiness is really like the self-defeating and it's impossible. It is something that has been a part of our culture for a long time. And it's, I mean, it's very obvious because it's the safest time to live in the world. It's the least poverty, the least amount of people are hungry, the least amount of deaths in the world ever in human history recorded. And yet we are the most anxious, depressed, angry, upset, annoyed, pissed off. It is crazy how unhappy people are in the safest time to be alive as a human being. And this is the only reason as I was reading this book, and this is kind of what he really talks about throughout really the whole book, but more so in this chapter. And it's just unbelievable to me to think about because it's so true. We have everything we could possibly want at our fingertips. And yet we are miserable and yet we are sad and yet we are depressed. Pain is always there. The only thing that changes is our perception of it. As soon as your life improves, your expectations shift and you're back to being mildly dissatisfied again. And this is how it works. And if you start paying attention, there's no disputing this. And think about pain, too. It can work in the other direction. He uses the, Mark Manson uses the example in the book about getting a tattoo. Getting a tattoo hurts. But if you ever got a tattoo, after 10, 15 minutes, you don't even notice the needle in your leg, arm, wherever you're in your tattoo at. You don't notice the pain anymore. So it can work both ways. So it brings us back to this whole, you can't get rid of pain because pain is life. Pain is existence. Pain is a constant. It's something that is always going to be there. You're never going to get rid of it. Believe me, I have tried. 
with very heavy drugs <laughs> to get rid of pain and numb it out and it just makes it worse because you can't get rid of it it's the universal constant of a human condition you can't get rid of it therefore any attempt to move away from pain and to protect yourself from it can only it can only backfire and even if you're successful at it, you start finding the most stupid things to start getting upset about and to create drama with. We are constantly doing this. This is why you see people complaining about having too much lettuce and tomato on their hamburger when they order it. I mean, this is also obvious in people who win the lottery. On average, they end up feeling the same. And the same thing with people who are paralyzed in a freak accident. They end up feeling the same. And here's another quote from the book that I love. Pain is the experience of life itself. Positive emotions are the temporary removal of pain. Negative emotions are the temporary augmentation of it. So to numb one's pain is to numb all feeling, all emotion. I mean, that's what it is. If you, you can't selectively numb pain and not expect to numb other things as well. I mean, you can't escape pain because pain is the experience. Pain is always there. Trouble is always there in our minds. I mean, no matter what you achieve, no matter what kind of peace and prosperity you find, your mind will quickly adjust its expectations to maintain a steady sense of adversity. So the more we try to pursue this happiness, the more self-defeating it becomes. And the way I look at it, if we're going to be forced to suffer, which as we've just established, that is life. There's no getting away from it. It's always going to be there. If we're going to be forced to do it, we might as well learn how to do it well. You might as well learn how to be good at it. So that was kind of the first point of this episode was just to establish and show that how we are constantly living in on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being the happiest, we are constantly in this 6 or 7. This is why we are always looking to grab things in the future. We get them. We think they're going to make us happy. They do for a very short period of time, and we're back to mediocrity again. We're back to the, eh, could be worse, could be better attitude. So from there, in this chapter, he brings up this essayist, scholar, statistician by the name of Nassim Taleb. Please don't yell at me if I mispronounce his name. But uh, he goes on to talk about this term, anti-fragility. He basically, I'm not going to get into the craziness of it because I'll just make myself sound stupid. But he basically talks about how there's things in the world that are fragile, robust. And then there's things that are anti-fragile. So something fragile would be like a glass or a vase or a vase. Something robust. I think uh, Mark Manson uses that exa example in his book of like an oil drum and you can throw it and beat it and it just, it won't break. But then he talks about this term anti-fragility. And I guess an example of this would be like our muscles, that with the more stress we put on them, the stronger they get, or our immune system, that we need to introduce our immune system to some kind of sickness so it can become stronger and defend off more viruses and sicknesses. Or like a healthy relationship, or a relationship with your family, or a love relationship where the more challenges you have, the more you come out on top and the stronger it makes you. I've always said this was my relationship with Christine. We've been through so much that we have it has brought us closer together i've said that about my parents and my sister with my brother and sister dying when i was 15 that that brought our family tighter and closer together it made us not care about stupid things because we knew we could lose one another at any moment it made us not make a big deal out of the big things and i feel like the human mind operates on this same principle 
that when we run into chaos, we run into shit, and we run into a trouble time, and our mind tries to make sense of stuff, it tries to construct different models of it, it tries to predict future events, evaluate the past, and it tries to learn. It basically allows you, it allows you to get order from disorder. But when you are avoiding pain, when you're avoiding stress, your mind becomes more fragile. And why is that? Because once again, pain is constant. So no matter how good or bad your life gets, pain will always be there. So the question is, will you engage it? Will you engage the pain? And in order to get stronger, in order to be able to deal with suffering and to deal with pain, we need to run into it head on. And I used the example two seconds ago about muscles. The more you work out, the better it gets. If we're always alert and trying to deal with these things, we will become stronger. Life becomes easier, essentially, and it becomes better. And we learn how to just bless the pain, bless the sorrow. If we avoid it, if we numb, if we never want to look into it and just sit back and pretend like it's not even there, you find that you can't handle much of the world. Everything we do and everything we are and that we care about is a reflection of this choice. Whether we are going to face the pain and learn from it, or are we going to run and hide from it? Our relationships, our health, our results at work, our emotional stability, our integrity, our engagement with our community, our self-confidence, our courage, our pet compassion. I mean, all these things are a reflection of either we're fragile and we run and we hide, or we're anti-fragile that we run into it, we face the pain, we face the suffering, and we grow from it. Mark Manson talks about this, and I think it's, I couldn't agree more with him that our culture, especially in America, is becoming this very fragile thing where we're not allowed to talk about controversial issues. We're not allowed to talk about different things and have a conversation when we have different ideologies without getting upset and calling somebody a name. One of the biggest things that can help us in this journey of learning how to face a pain is meditation. I shared with us on this podcast that meditation was something I was doing when I was in jail for three hours a day. And right now I haven't done it for probably three or four weeks. So I'm also preaching this to myself <laughs> that I need to start doing it more. We all need to start doing it more. Because at its core, practicing meditation is practicing anti-fragility. And I really believe meditation is a way to train your mind to constantly look at the pain and it's a, a way to not allow your in quote self get sucked away by the crap meditation is confronting your pain it's observing the interiors of your mind and heart in all of their glory and all of their crappiness and all of its painfulness i mean for me i like meditating when i do at least a half hour usually takes me a good 20 minutes to even get in a mode but you have time to do it even for 10 minutes is a good start. It's amazing how like time just vanishes when you start doing it for long periods of time. And here's a little segment from the book about meditation at the end of this paragraph. He says, the Buddha said that suffering is like being shot by two arrows. The first arrow is the physical pain. It's the metal piercing the skin, the force colliding into the body. The second arrow is the mental pain. The meaning and emotion we attach to the being struck, the narratives that we spin in our minds about whether we deserve or didn't deserve what happened. In many cases, our mental pain is far worse than our physical pain. In most cases, it lasts longer. And that's true. Once again, when you start thinking about something that has happened to you in your life, most of the time, the majority of suffering comes from thinking, comes from guilt, shame, 
feeling hurt because somebody did something to you and you let it bother you for years sometimes years we let it bother us for and the buddha went on to talk about this arrow that through meditation we can train ourselves to be struck only by the first arrow which means we could essentially render ourselves invincible to any mental or emotional pain I mean, that's really what the Buddha was teaching and saying about meditation was so much suffering comes from thought. And if we can learn and practice meditation, we can learn how to get rid of that suffering. And I think it's important to remember that there is always a separation between what we experience and how we interpret that experience as well. And that is something meditation can help with. So if you're listening to this and you've been thinking meditation is too hard or you suck at it, we all suck at meditating. (laughs) When you're sitting there on a pillow for long periods of time and you're watching your thoughts come up and then you're letting them go, there's some crazy stuff that can come up. A lot of painful things. Maybe a traumatic experience when you were a kid. Maybe a traumatic experience from two hours ago. But meditation, really, we start training our brain and our mind to start allowing those things to disappear. So this concept of anti-fragility, I absolutely love. It's rather kind of simple, but it's something that is amazing to think about because the more we look into the tough stuff of life, the more we run into the crappy things of life, the stronger we become, the more we learn, the more we grow. This is my favorite blog. I always talk about my paradoxical addiction, that it's hilarious, quotes, hilarious, that something like a heroin addiction can be the source of something that has made me become a confident, self-loving, self-forgiving, self-accepting individual. I mean, it's super bizarre, but that's what the whole essence of anti-fragility is, is to lean into the crappiness of life. So that way, when going back to the scale of 1 to 10, when we're sitting at a 6, it's just a 6, and we're allowed to just let it be a 6. And when we're at a 7, 8, 9, 10, when we're at a 9, we allow it to be a 9. When we're at a 2, we allow it to be a 2. And this whole scale from 1 to 10 of from shittiness to happiness becomes nothing but the experience in the moment of where we're at. And it becomes a period of learning and a period of teaching. And you'll see the fruitfulness of that in everything that you do in your existence, your relationships, your work, your community, your home. You don't mind being alone. In return from not minding being alone, you don't rush into a relationship that you shouldn't even be in anyway. And all these just beautiful things come and blossom from anti-fragility and from leaning into what is hard, for talking about the things we don't want to talk about, for crying when we feel like crying, for being happy when we feel like being happy and not letting anything change what our experience is at the moment. So moving on to the last part, this is just the value of pain. Because all of this leading up, I think, is to really show you that Pain is something that is beautiful and valuable in our lives. Think about if death didn't exist, if you had immortality, and then really think about it. I mean, if you remove death, you remove any scarcity from life, which means if you remove any scarcity, that means you remove the ability to determine value, and everything will seem equally good and bad, equally worthy and unworthy, which means you wouldn't have any joy either. I remember this movie I watched on Netflix so many years ago, like right when Netflix came out, and it was a society that nobody could feel pain, nobody could feel sorrow, and the drug dealers in this society sold pills that made you feel 
physical and emotional and mental pain. And people were addicted. Such a crazy concept. I've been trying to find this movie. I don't know the title of it for many, many years. I can never find it. But it was such an awesome concept of a movie because, yes, if, if there was no such thing as pain and sorrow, you would have no idea what joy and happiness is. They're two sides of the same coin. It's not life and death. It's birth and death equals life. If you can't die, you're not living. If you can live forever, nothing seems to have any value. I mean, death is psychologically necessary because it creates stakes in life. It gives you something to lose. And as Mark Manson says in this book, you don't know what something is worth until you experience the potential to lose it. Without the pain of loss or potential loss, it becomes impossible to determine the value of anything at all. Pain is at the heart of all emotion. Negative emotions are caused by experiencing pain. Positive emotions are caused by alleviating pain. And when we avoid pain and make ourselves more fragile, the result is our emotional reactions will be widely disproportional to the importance of the event. Meaning, as I stated earlier, that's the person in the restaurant that is pissed off and angry because there's too much lettuce and tomato on his hamburger when he ordered it. You start finding stupid things to get pissed off about that are pointless and meaningless. And the more anti-fragile you become, the better your emotional responses are. The more control you exercise over yourself, and the more principled your values are. So anti-fragility, leaning into the pain, is basically growing and learning and maturity. And to quote Mark Manson again from the book, Life is one never-ending stream of pain. And to grow is not to find a way to avoid that stream, but rather to dive into it and successfully navigate its depths. Therefore, that kind of means the pursuit of happiness is then an avoidance of growth, an avoidance of maturity, an avoidance of virtue. It is treating ourselves and our minds as a means to some emotional giddy end. Plato and Aristotle were talking about stuff like this, that life wasn't chasing happiness. Life was developing your character and developing the ability to sustain pain and make the appropriate sacrifices. It's growth from chaos and adversity. And this isn't to say that you can't improve your pain. <laughs> you just can't eliminate it. And if you think about it throughout history, mentioning like Plato and Aristotle from that time, even before then, to now. I mean, just a few hundred years ago, there was famine, disease, crazy suffering going on in the world. But technology has allowed us to change the world and provide less suffering. Hence, like I said, it's the safest time to be living. But yet there's still so much psychological suffering going on. There's still so much anxiety, so much depression. And there's something that Aristotle and Plato also talked about. It doesn't matter how much wealth you get, how bad, good your technology is. The quality of our lives is determined by the quality of our character. And the quality of our character is determined by our relationship to our pain. The pursuit of happiness plunges us headfirst towards nihilism and frivolity. I mean, the pursuit of happiness is essentially now, the more you think about it, is taking you towards more pain. It's quite the enigma, my friends, <laughs> that the more you try to run into happiness and always be happy and always get stuff that you think is going to make you happy, the more difficult your life becomes, the more painful it becomes. This might sound kind of sadistic in a way, but like if you pursue pain instead, and I don't mean going around and being stupid, you guys know what I mean. When you pursue pain instead, you're able to choose what pain you bring into your life. 
and this choice makes the pain meaningful and if you make pain meaningful that means you can make life feel meaningful as well because once again pain is universal and the opportunities to grow from that pain are a constant in life all that is required is that we engage it and find value and meaning in it because to numb ourselves to our pain is to numb ourselves to anything that matters in the world and when we deny ourselves the ability to feel pain for a purpose we deny ourselves the ability to feel any purpose in life at all and i think it's so important that we continue to be aware of what is going on in our lives to be aware of the pain to not run away from it that is the reason why i believe addiction even exists I've had this conversation with quite a few people before. In my early 20s, I remember being able to have some beers on the weekend and randomly be with some buddies who had some some pain pills and take them. I spent years doing this at random times, never seeking out more pain pills. Until this happened after my divorce and I felt like the biggest failure, failure as a father, husband, and son. And then I came across some pills and I realized I numbed that failure as a father, or the thoughts of being a failure as a father, a son, a brother, a husband, whatever. I just numbed it, and that was it. I felt great about myself. I ran away from it, and I didn't have to feel it anymore. But as you know, what happens there is I ended up in jail. I ended up in rehabs. I missed out on all these this time. As I stated earlier, in order to change those parts of my character, I had to go through what I went through, but it all started from having pain and running from it and trying just to stay up at the nine and not want to come down towards the three, the two. So we have to try to stop numbing. We have to find the beauty in the pain. We have to remember that it is not going anywhere. And the longer you run from it and the longer you numb it, the harder it's going to be to get back. The harder it's going to be to find the beauty in the pain. So thank you for listening to this, guys. The book, again, is Everything is Fucked by Mark Manson get it it's awesome reading it yourself can be explained much better than i just did now so be sure to check it out also check out room9podcast.com let me know what you thought about the solo episode i don't do them enough i feel like i'm terrible at them but i don't think it was too bad i hope there was some substance for you guys to get out of it and just even if it sparked your curiosity to look in and think about something how pain is a constant in our lives and we have to learn how to live with it and see the beauty in it and learn from it All right, guys. Much love. Thank you for all your support. Thank you for listening. I will talk to you later. Peace.